Father, we're grateful for the glorious Redeemer that you have sent for us. I pray, Father, that we would truly rejoice in Christ, our Redeemer. And Father, as we reflect now on the Gospel, as we reflect now on, Father, what we are apart from your grace, what we have earned from you, and yet all that we have in Christ Jesus. Father, motivate our living. Uh, Let us not uh, be able but help to live in response to your glory and your kindness and mercy towards us in Jesus Christ. Let us grow in our love for you and our desire to see you exalted in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We're grateful that we have it for us now. I pray that you would apply it by the power of your Spirit to us. We thank you. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3, Romans 3, we'll be looking at verses 19 through 20. These are the last few verses in this subsection that uh, we started last week. Uh, So when we read the text, we're going to start back at the beginning of this subsection, back in verse 9. But we're going to sit on and focus on verses 19 to 20. Now, as we continue through Romans, as we go, we see through Paul, and, and here today, we'll see the purpose that there is in the law. Why was the law given? How is the law to be used? We, we, we see that as we look today. And what we specifically see is the usefulness of the law for the unbeliever. And what the law does for the unbeliever. Now, as we sit here as believers, trusting in Jesus Christ, as we are following him, uh, does that mean then that if, if the law, we see the usefulness for unbelievers, that, that we just don't need the law then, we can throw it out and be done with it? You know, we're under grace, right? Paul will say later, we're not under law, but grace. So does that mean that there's no use for the law for us, that we can be what's called antinomians? No, uh, that, that is not the case at all. And so contrary to what some would want to tell us, that we should unhitch from the Old Testament, that's just not the case. It's not true at all. And so as we ourselves look at the law following Jesus Christ, as we are saved by grace, God having saved us has given us circumcised hearts, as we've seen Paul put it. That God has changed our hearts. And for all of those whom God saves, he causes them to grow in holiness. And we've said, going through Romans, that what we see here in Romans is the doctrine of justification, that we are declared righteous before God by faith. Yet for all whom God justifies, he also sanctifies and we grow in holiness as even as we look at the law, and from the law we see what it is that pleases God. We see what it is that's God's will for us. We see God's standard of righteousness. And therefore, as we look at the law, we see that in our practical living, we have not made it yet. We do have a righteous standing before God. We stand in Jesus Christ and his righteousness credited to us again by faith. And so in that righteousness, we are are no less righteous one day than than another day. 
because that righteousness is not our own. It's not at all dependent upon us, and praise God for that. But in our practical living, we have not yet made it to that perfect, holy righteousness. We are growing. We are going in that direction, albeit at different rates, and uh, each one of us are at different places in that growth and sanctification, but nonetheless, we are growing. And so as the law shows us we have not made it yet, then the law keeps us looking to Christ, depending upon Christ, to never be looking to ourselves and thinking that it's anything about what we do at any point in our Christian lives, at any point in our walk with Christ. It's always what he has done. It's always depending on him. And so it keeps us focused and looking to Christ. It keeps us preaching the gospel to ourselves, that we would live in response to all that Christ is and all that he has done. It keeps us, as we gather together, looking to his word together, hearing his word preached together, and in that being reminded of the gospel. And as we gather together and we practice the ordinances, we have a picture of the gospel staying before us in in baptism and as we celebrate today, communion. That we live in response to the gospel. That we know that by the saving work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in dwelling us, God has written His law on our hearts, that now we love what God loves, as we love this God who so loved us that He sent His Son. As we love Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us, and that we live out of this love, wanting to please this great and awesome God, wanting to do what He calls us to, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, knowing what pleases him, and so wanting to please him, we pursue that holiness in obedience to his word as we seek to obey him and please him. But again, as we look to our text here this morning, we see the usefulness of the law for the unbeliever. And again, the law reveals God's holy standard. And so we look into the law of God and see that we have not upheld that standard, not one of us. And so the law reveals sin. It establishes God's standard of righteousness, such a high and holy standard as we've discussed. And that is that standard by which every life will be judged. And so that we would see that we ourselves are not righteous, we are not good, but instead under wrath as lawbreakers. And so infinitely desperate for a Savior. The law shows us that need. That we all need to be saved. And there's only one who saves. No one can save themselves by uh, any amount of good works, hoping their their good outweighs their bad. Uh, No one can add to the work of the Savior and help salvation along as if Jesus has provided salvation and then we secure it by what we do. That's that's closer to what Catholicism teaches, not, not what we see anything that Paul says or anywhere else in the Scriptures. But the law is to drive us to the Savior because the law crushes us under its weight under its, its demand and high standard, that we would recognize ourselves as hopeless sinners 
so that we would run to Christ, depending on Him and His work alone for our salvation. And so as we continue here in Romans and we wrap up this this section uh, of Romans where Paul has been making his first argument in defending his thesis, this first argument has been the bad news, uh, our hopeless state. And so as Paul wraps all of this up and showing that all are sinful, we see here this use of the law. Now remember, we are finishing up this final subsection that wraps up Paul's first argument. And what we've seen is that Paul has been showing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it is the power of God unto salvation, for in it, the righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith. And it is from faith to faith. In that it's initially by faith that we receive it and, and we continue in righteousness by faith. But again, at no point does it become about what we do. We don't just start off with faith and then can transition into our works. But it is always by faith that we are made right before God. And so it is by faith alone. And so we see here in Romans, Paul building his argument to show this truth of the gospel as the power of God. And as you go through Romans, uh, many have pointed out just how orderly and how logically Paul makes his argument as he builds his case. And so again, we saw him begin by discussing the wrath of God. And specifically in chapter 1, as God pulls back his hand of grace that restrains sin in humanity... As God consigns mankind over to the propensity of their sinfulness, we see that men are deserving of God's wrath. And then Paul went on to show the wickedness of the Gentiles, how they are without righteousness. And we saw that in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he began to transition from focusing on the Gentiles to focusing on the Jews. And in that transition, he showed the moral bankruptcy of the moralist, whether Jew or Gentile. And then in chapter 2, starting in verse 17, he really then began to focus on the Jews. And he does all the way through chapter 3, verse 8, demonstrating the sinfulness of the Jews, demonstrating that they too are without righteousness, despite their advantages, despite being called Jews, being God's people, uh, despite having the law and circumcision. Uh, They did not keep the law. And so none of those things would allow them to escape God's judgment. They too would stand, just as the Gentiles do, before God as guilty. And so he's been building all of this up as we've been going through Romans. And so then last week, uh, we began this subsection, which is the conclusion to that argument. And there he concluded, as we saw last week, all are under sin, whether Jews or Gentiles. All are totally depraved. And so this is where Paul had begun to build his case for the gospel. And we said at the onset of this study that we should learn from Paul in all of this. That we see where Paul begins when he's explaining the gospel and defending the gospel. And the very place Paul begins is with the bad news. And so we too should begin with the bad news. 
even as the word gospel means good news. Because to really understand how good the gospel is, to really appreciate it as good news, we have to understand the bad news. To really understand the gospel at all, we have to understand the bad news. And so we should follow Paul's example here, both in his logical progression in his argument and how he presents his case and explaining the gospel, and in our proclamation of the gospel. We must start with the bad news. And that's what we've been seeing so far. Now, we're almost to the good news now, and actually we'll, we'll start to look at the good news next Sunday. And so that, that's exciting. So you want to make sure you're here for that. You don't want to miss that, right? Uh, we are going to be looking at that, but we do need to finish the bad news. And so with that, let's read our text here together. If you would read along with me as I read out loud. And, and again, I want to go back to the beginning of this subsection in verse 9. And so we're going to start there and read through verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So as Paul wraps up this section, he says there in verse 19, now. And by saying that, he is marking the close of his first argument, having demonstrated that all are under sin. And so, here in closing his argument, he presents to his readers, and and maybe even so presenting more specifically to his imaginary Jewish opponent, which even then, through him, he'd be presenting this to his readers, and presenting to them that his conclusion is something that is plainly evident. It is something that they all knew, something we all know. And what is it? Again, verse 19, he says, now we know. And what do we know? What, what, what's so obvious? What's well, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Right? And that, that only makes sense. Right? If you're under the law, whatever it says, it, it's saying it to you. It, it speaks to you who are under the law. And so as we work through this and, and see what Paul is saying in all this, the first thing we need to ask is what really is in reference when he says the law. As we go through Romans, we'll see that the large majority of the time, when Paul references the law, he's referring to the Mosaic law, the law that had been given through Moses, that which includes the Ten Commandments, that which is found in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But there are many who argue 
that here in this text, when Paul refers to the law, he's referring to the entire Old Testament. And they say this because in this section, just before Paul says this, and what we went over last week, Paul references mostly the Psalms, but he also referenced Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. And so they say that is what this is referring back to when he's talking about the law here in verse 9. And so it means the entire Old Testament. And determining here what Paul means, if he means the Mosaic Law or he means the entire Old Testament, Thomas Schreiner said this, he said, A strong distinction should not be made, since those who are branded as wicked in the Psalms and Isaiah are evil precisely because they did not keep the Law of Moses. And I think we should consider there what he says. Um... Even though, as I say this, I personally lean, and really more than lean, uh, towards the law here referring to the Mosaic law. But I do so even as you consider what Thomas Schreiner says here. Because as Paul is talking about those who are wicked, or David really in the Psalms, talking about those who were wicked, and those who are wicked that were mentioned by the prophet Isaiah... On what basis were they wicked? On the basis that they did not keep the Mosaic Law. They did not keep the commands that God had given them. And so we see that that is the standard, right? That is the measurement of righteousness. Now, in any case, whether we're talking about the whole Old Testament or we're talking about the Mosaic Law, we still have to ask then, too, who is it that's under the law? Well, again, who was the one given the Old Testament? Who was it that was given God's law through Moses? It was the Jews, right? And so then the argument goes that this must logically be specifically referring to the Jews. That the law speaks to them, for they are the ones under the law. And that being the case, then this would be another way of reminding the Jews that there is no escape for them when it comes to the judgment of God. They are the ones who were given God's standard. They were the ones who had this advantage. And having it, they did not uphold the standard of that law they were given, and so they will face the judgment that comes with not upholding that law. There's no escape for them. So again, the law speaks to those who are under the law, the law given to the Jews. But was God's righteous standard given only to the Jews? Is that what we've seen as we've been studying through Romans? No, we have seen that the Gentiles have an innate knowledge of God's righteous standard. That God had written the work of his law on their hearts. God placed them under that standard. And remember what we we read last week. Paul in this subsection drove home the point of the larger section, as he said there in verse 9, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And so the, the righteous standard of God is seen as all are condemned under that standard, both Jew and Gentile. The law speaks to both Jews and Gentiles. And then even as we continue here and we see why it speaks to those who are under the law, what does Paul say? What's the reason that it does? 
He says, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Again, every mouth, the whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike. They are accountable to God. And again, look at what Paul says here. When that final court is convened, and our Lord passes judgment, no one will say, that wasn't right. No one will say, that was unjust. There will be no higher court to appeal to, but also, too, no one will want to appeal their verdict because they will know what they've done. They will know the sentencing is right. No one will have any excuses. Every mouth will be shut. Now, people justify themselves, right? They give reasons to why they should not be judged. And we've seen Paul give an example of that through his imaginary Jewish opponent who found a way to say that if God were to judge the Jews, he would be unjust for doing so. But we see today, and maybe we've said these things ourselves at some point, things that justify ourselves before God, things that give excuses for our sin. Saying things like, well, you know, you just don't know what they did to me. Or you don't know what it's like. You're not in my shoes. Or, you know, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm really a good person. Or, you know, I just, I just couldn't help it. Could you? I mean... But before Christ the judge, no one will argue... There will be no excuses. Every mouth will be shut. They will know their sentence to the lake of fire is just. And this is what the law does. It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. Jews and Gentiles alike will be held accountable to God. Every motive will be exposed. Every deed seen for what it is. Every careless word will be brought into account. Measured against the standard of God's righteousness. As the law holds the world accountable, showing each one has earned God's just wrath. And we see then there in verse 20, as verse 20 begins with the word for, showing the basis for the law stopping every mouth and, and holding the whole world accountable to God. And the basis for this is the fact that no one can look to the law and see that they have done what the law requires and so be declared righteous in God's sight. No one can. And the reason no one will be declared righteous by the works of the law is for through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, the law does not justify. The law actually doesn't make anyone righteous, but instead serves to show that you and I are not righteous. Instead, by the law, we see what sin is. So we gain the knowledge of our sin to see that we are sinners. So instead of looking to the law to see that we have kept the law, we look to God's law and find that we have broken it. When I look to the law, I find, for example, 
that God requires that he be number one, that he be the only God, the one who is number one in our priorities, enthroned on the seat of our affections, that there should be none other in competition with him, none other before his face. And yet, can I say that I have always made God my number one priority? Can I say that I've always loved him above all else and everything? I can't. And neither can you. When I look to God's law, I see that God demands truthfulness, for that is his very nature. His character is truth. And so to lie is to break his law. Have I ever lied? Yes. And so have you. God's law demands gratitude. That I'd be thankful for all that I have. And so when I'm ungrateful and I covet what my neighbor possesses that I have no right to, I break his law. Have I ever been guilty of coveting? Yeah. And so have you. And not only does the law reveal sin that we've done, but as we'll see later in Romans, the law provokes the sin that is in us, revealing that we not only have sinned, but we are sinners. We see, for example, in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And in chapter 7, verse 5, Paul says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And in chapter 7, verse 8, Paul says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So the law provokes our sinfulness. It, it provokes that natural rebel, re, uh, rebel that we are. You tell me that this is not what I should do? Well, then that's now the very thing I want to do. Because that's the condition of my heart. It reveals my sinfulness. The law makes you aware of sin and shows how deep your sin goes. And so, therefore, demonstrates you cannot keep the law. Therefore, no one will be justified by works of the law. Because when I look to the law, instead of seeing reasons why God should accept me, instead of seeing reasons of why I should be considered a good person and righteous, instead I see every reason why I should stand in judgment before the holy God. The law shuts my mouth and holds me accountable to God, showing I am not good. I have no righteousness. Instead, I am condemned, awaiting wrath. And that's exactly what the law is for. It demonstrates the peril that we're in. It brings to light our desperate situation. It humbles us. Because naturally... We're prideful. Naturally, we think pretty highly of ourselves. We think we're good. Of course I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I'm a good person. 
Of course I'm accepted before God. You know, I, I go to church, I pray, you know, I, I volunteer my time, I, I give to charities, I do all of these good things. Of course I'm good. But God's law says no. You are wretched. You are totally depraved. You have no righteousness. You are under wrath. And without righteousness, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So we must not kick back against the evidence that the law presents before us. Instead, we must humble ourselves under the law and submit to its verdict. And when we do, what are we left with? Nothing. We have nothing. We have no pride. We have nothing good about us. We have nothing to present to God that would appease his wrath or that would cause him to accept us. We have no righteousness. And so the law shows us that we are in need. We are in need of that righteousness that is from God that is revealed in the gospel. That's what we need. Otherwise, we have nothing. And again, that's what the law is for. It shows our condemnation before a holy God. It shows that we are in desperate need of a Savior. See, and so what the law does, it, appoint, it points us away from ourselves. It points us away from ourselves so that we would stop looking to ourselves and anything about us. It points away from ourselves and it points us to Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. And, and the word guardian here, or some translations say tutor or schoolmaster, uh, this refers to a slave who cared for the master's child till that child became an adult. And that slave would take the child to school and was responsible for the child's behavior. And so for us, this was the law. The law was a guardian until Christ came, as Paul says here, in order that we might be justified by faith. And so the point of the law was to take us by the hand and lead us to Christ. That's what the law is supposed to do. So that we would be justified, declared right in God's sight by faith. And for us to come to Christ by faith, it takes the Holy Spirit opening up our eyes to our sin through the law. We have to recognize our need for a Savior. We have to understand the severity of our situation, or we will never look to Christ. We must first see that we are, as others have put it, spiritually bankrupt. That if we were to look to our spiritual bank account to see how much righteousness we have saved up, we would see not only is our bank account empty, but it's actually got a negative, infinitely negative number. We are in debt because of our sin. And there's nothing we can do to pay off that debt. But when we recognize that we are in debt, when we recognize that there's nothing that we have to present to God, then we will 
look to Christ. Look to Christ to have his righteousness fill our account. Have his righteousness credited to us. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But if instead of humbling ourselves under God's law, we insist that we're good, if we justify and minimize our sin, if we will not succumb to the bad news that there is, then there is really no good news for us. Think, for instance, about the encounter that we read of in the Gospel of Mark, of Jesus and the rich young ruler. Uh, This man comes to Jesus, and and first of all, he comes calling Jesus good. He calls him good teacher. And clearly this man did not recognize Jesus as anything else but a teacher. And so if he calls Jesus good, but he didn't recognize Jesus as God, then clearly he didn't understand what it was to be good. So Jesus asks him why he calls him good and corrects his understanding, saying, only God is good. And then after correcting his understanding of good, Jesus then answers his initial question, which was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus' answer to this question might surprise us if we don't know the story. Jesus tells him to keep the commandments. And then Jesus lists off the latter part of the Ten Commandments. And how does the man respond to that? Oh yeah, I've kept all of those things since I was a boy. Yeah, I've done that. I'm good. Who was the, uh, who was the pastor that uh, going through that, this passage uh, in Mark there, uh, saying that how Jesus tells the man only God is good, and then a minute later he's like, hey, me too. <laughs> I'm good. Right? And that's exactly what he does. He declares his own goodness. I've kept all of those things since I was a boy. But what was obvious is that he had not. He was a lawbreaker. And so Jesus continued to press the standard of God's law on him. See, because God was not first in his life either. This man had replaced God with an idol, and so therefore broke the first and second commandments. His God was his wealth. And so we read there in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And what happened with this man? Verse 22 tells us, Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now we might say, wait a minute, Jesus, why'd you let him go away? Why'd you let him go away sorrowful? Why why didn't you share with him the good news? Tell him to trust in you. Tell him how you're going to die for his sins. Why did Jesus let him go? Because there was no good news for him. He would not humble himself under the law. He chose to hold on to his self-righteousness, and instead of coming to Christ and following him, he chose to serve money as his God. 
And look again at what we read there in verse 21. It says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Walking this man through the righteous standard of God's law, holding up the law to this man, was Jesus loving him. This was the loving thing to do so that he would recognize his plight before a holy God, so that he would then truly come to Jesus to be saved. Listen, sometimes we may have a hard time holding up the law to people and talking about sin and wrath and those things, but listen, that's the loving thing to do. When someone did that for us, that we would trust in Jesus Christ, they were loving us. And how could we love someone any less? We need to tell these things. We need to uphold the law. We fear sometimes. We fear offending people. We know people don't want to hear about sin and wrath. But we need to love them. Again, brothers and sisters, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Listen, if there is one who already recognizes that they have earned hell, uh, that they have no way to God on their own, but they, they just don't know the way of salvation, I'm not saying we beat them with the law. I think Ray Comfort's rule of thumb is good here. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. But when someone will not humble themselves, when they are determined to declare their own righteousness... Well, the problem for us comes in if we refuse to preach the law. And listen, that's what we're told to in the modern church so often. We're told, don't, don't preach the law. Don't preach wrath. What we have to do is draw people in through their felt needs. Listen, are you lacking purpose in your life? Are you searching for purpose? Come to Jesus and you'll find your purpose. Do you feel worthless? Come to Jesus and, and find your worth. Are you depressed? Are you restless? Come to Jesus and you can have peace. And we pinpoint different struggles that people have in their marriages and their finances with their children and whatever it might be. Whatever those troubles are, you come to Jesus and he'll make it all better. And what happens? People come to Christ on those bases they come to Christ with the promise that their, their issues will be fixed. They'll feel better about themselves. And when they don't, what do they say? Well, that didn't work. So all of this is just a bunch of malarkey. And all we have done is we've added to the trend that we see out there today of deconstructing. These are not the reasons that we call sinners to Christ. Now, when one comes to Christ, do they understand something about purpose? Sure. When one comes to Christ, do they realize where worth is found and what all that means? Sure. Is there peace in Christ? Absolutely. Does Christ promise to take our problems away? No. But he promises to work in our lives through them to do his good work 
through them. Coming to Christ affects these areas, but this is not why the sinner must come to Christ. The sinner must come to Christ because the sinner has no righteousness and Christ must be their righteousness. That's why we must come to Christ. We've all sinned and we need forgiveness and there's forgiveness nowhere else but in Christ Jesus. And when we preach the gospel with felt needs, we pervert the gospel. And we give people a blank check for their felt needs, we give them a check that's going to bounce. And we've done nothing but bring harm to the Word of God in the eyes of the world around us. And why would we do that now? Why would we preach as a message? Because we don't want to turn people off. And what we really mean by that is we don't want to turn them off to us. We want people to like us. So we want to avoid talking about the difficult things and talk about the things that will attract them and draw them in. But again, we pervert the gospel when we do that. When we try to avoid controversy. Others have said it, and it's right, that if we remove the offense of the gospel, we remove the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said this, when you go to lost souls, you must tell them plainly their condition and their danger. If you really long to save men's souls, you must tell them a great deal of disagreeable truth. The preaching of wrath of God has come to be sneered at nowadays, and even good people are half ashamed of it. Molding sentimentality about love and goodness has hushed in a great measure, plain gospel expostulations and warnings. But my brethren, if we expect souls to be saved, we must declare unflinchingly, with all affectionate fidelity, the terror of the Lord. And listen, I don't, I don't mean to say that we, we preach the law and we preach sin and we preach about wrath and judgment. And I also don't refer to this quote either to say that we are to try to scare people into trusting in Christ in the sense that we are pushing an emotional response. Uh, because we're not pushing an emotional response. No, we are if we preach felt needs. That, that's just trying to get an emotional response. But the idea in proclaiming the law and the judgment of God is, as we said last week, there must be, it's true, there must be a fear of the Lord. We must understand our plight before a holy God, yes, for sure. And understand that that danger that we are in so that we will flee to Christ and flee to Christ for refuge. Finding that refuge in Him, then we love Him. We're so grateful to Him. And as we love him, we esteem him as our Lord and Savior. We esteem his sacrifice. And so in great devotion, we then bow down before him as Lord. The law tears down our pride. That's what we're doing. It tears down the pride that is Pharisee-like, that would boast in our own self-righteousness, as if we have nothing to fear before God. The law converts us 
to be like the tax collector in Jesus' parable, as we read in Luke chapter 18, verses 13 to 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee who boasted in his own self-righteousness. And Jesus said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. My friends, we must be humbled under the law. We must be humbled that we would flee to Christ and beg him, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, because unlike what the late Robert Schuert said, that before you can receive grace, you have to know that you are worthy of it. No. Actually, by definition, if you are worthy of it, it's not grace. The opposite is true. You have to see that you are not worthy. And so for the sinner who proclaims their own goodness... We cannot avoid preaching the law. Again, Charles Spurgeon said this, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. Lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain. I say you have deprived the gospel of its ablest auxiliary when you have set aside the law. You have taken away from it the schoolmaster that is to bring men to Christ. They will never accept grace till they tremble before a just and holy law. Therefore, the law serves a most necessary purpose, and it must not be removed from its place. Also, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The trouble with people who are not seeking for a Savior and for salvation is that they do not understand the nature of sin. It is the peculiar function of the law to bring such an understanding to a man's mind and conscience. That is why great evangelical preachers 300 years ago in the time of the Puritans and 200 years ago in the time of Whitfield and others always engage in what they called a preliminary law work. And they're right. We have to preach the law. And my friends, don't, don't misunderstand me. We, we have to get this right. In your salvation, the law cannot save you. If you look to the law to be righteous before God, and therefore look to your own works to be righteous before God, you will find no righteousness there. In this regard, the law is no friend to you, only a hard taskmaster. Yet if you are trusting in anything about you, I pray that you would look to the law to see that you've broken it. See that you are a sinner under God's wrath. See, you are not good. The law cannot save you. But for sure, the law can show you you need saving. And so recognize that you need a Savior and turn to the only one who saves. And if you come to Him, come to Jesus Christ, believing on Him alone to save you, you will find Jesus was good for you. He was righteous for you. He kept the law perfectly. You will find that Jesus stands for you as your representative. And having suffered and died for your sin, paying the price you owed under God's law, 
And he rose again to forever intercede for you. Look to the law. See that with every lie, every lustful glance, every bitter thought, every selfish motive, and every idolatrous, greedy act, you are left in of yourself without hope. And so without hope, with empty hands, look to Christ. Trust in him as your hope, as your guarantee of glory. Trust in Christ and you will be saved and he will be your righteousness. He who lived a perfect life. He is your righteousness. He who satisfied the righteous standard of God for lawbreakers in his suffering and death. He is your righteousness. He is all you need to be right before God. And brothers and sisters, though the law is no friend for salvation, for the salvation of your souls, the law is a friend for your evangelism. Point sinners to the law so that you may point them to Christ. Let the law bring the sinner low so that Christ will be exalted. No one will escape God's wrath apart from humbling themselves in repentance and turning to Jesus by faith. And so let us not fail to proclaim Christ. Let us share Christ as we call others to repentance and faith. We must preach the law, but don't fail to preach Christ. Men must come to him who represents them by faith before the Father. They must come to him who died as a substitute for sinners and rose again. The risen Lord who commands all people everywhere to repent and trust in him. And what joy it is for us who have trusted in him. What joy it is for us who have nothing in of ourselves but have everything in Christ. What joy it is for us to know what we deserve from him and yet all that he has given us. How glorious is he, our great and awesome King and Savior. He is great and he is worthy of us proclaiming his law and his gospel. He is worthy of us making his name known and rejoicing in the glorious Savior that he is. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to sing about what he's done for us. We're going to sing about this great hope that we have, that though we're wretched sinners, we have everything in Christ Jesus. And let us rejoice as we sing this and, and know the true joy of this salvation. That though we're wretched, we can sing his robes for mine, all wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. His robes were mine, such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He as though I cursed and left alone. I as though he embraced and welcomed home. He died as if he were the one that broke the law. And I'm accepted into the presence of God as if I'm the one who kept it. Because Jesus died for my sin and he kept the law for me. How great is he, our great and awesome Savior. Let's sing his praises. Let's give him the glory alone that he deserves for the great and awesome Savior he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Be glorified in us. We thank you. Amen.